Well, good morning, everybody. I want to say a special welcome to those of you who are new. First time, first time in a long time. Uh, my name is Alex, and I'm one of the pastors here. We're delighted if you're joining us here in person or online. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, what we're all about here as a church is pretty straightforward, connect people to God, to each other, so together we can engage our world for good. We hope you experience a little bit of all those things here this morning, especially if you're new. Uh, uh, apologies if my voice sounds a little hoarse. I might have been shrieking and squealing like a middle school girl last night for an unhealthy amount of time. Uh, actually, one of my middle school daughters actually had 12 middle school girls in our house. So there actually was middle school girls shrieking happening, and I was, I was just trying to match pitch with them. That's all I was just trying, trying to do. Uh, this is uh, last week of a series called Fractured. If you're just joining us, what we've been talking about is, you know, of all the things that Christians say is, are true around, about the world, uh, one of the most obvious things that is true is that the world is not as it should be. It's, it's broken, right? Whether that's uh, the situation in Ukraine that's been unfolding over the last several weeks. Come, Lord Jesus, have mercy on the people of Ukraine, we pray. Uh, and they're amazing, aren't they? Just watch what the Lord's doing there, and people, it's just incredible. Uh, to the, the, the racial incident here in Chatham County, to the people who've done you wrong over the course of your own life, to the wrongs that each of us has done along the way that we regret or feel shame over. Few things are more obvious that something's wrong with the world, and we should be able to talk about that pretty openly, honestly, but, but it's hard for us, right? For, uh, for one thing, it's just none of us likes to admit that there's something wrong with us or that we've contributed to the fracturing in the world. We started this series three weeks ago, and I, th I think the only ones left coming are the ones who haven't been here for the last two weeks. Uh, so thanks for, uh, thanks for skipping the last couple of weeks and being here on Sunday accidentally. We appreciate you uh, coming out. We don't like to admit that, that we're part of the problem, that we've contributed to the fracturing uh, of the world. And, and to make matters worse, uh, religious guys like me have often used like, the fact that we make mistakes to leverage guilt and shame in ways that are completely unproductive and unhelpful. And, like overwhelming, uh, sometimes patronizing or, 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 or freezing you in that shame or guilt. And uh, if, if that's been your experience in a church environment somewhere, we open this whole series with an apology because... Uh, when you talk about something that's true, as important as uh, fractured and, and brokenness in a way that's not helpful, it just freezes people rather than helps us to move forward in a healthy and God-honoring way. And so if you've had that experience, I'm so, so sorry. We, what we're trying to do here in this series as we wrap it up here today is talk about the reality of sin, of, of fracturedness in the world, in our own lives, in a way that we hope is constructive and, and generative, that actually helps us to move forward in the way that God made us to live and not just heaping on shame and guilt along the way. Here's the thing, Easter, just a couple weeks away, right? Just a couple weeks till Easter. And, and part of the problem is this. If you don't understand the problem Easter is solving, it's hard to know the joy of Easter. It's hard to know the wonders of Easter if you don't understand all of what God's doing, the crazy story that he's done, the unexpected thing he does in Jesus, if we don't, if we don't wrap our minds around the depth of the problem. And so we're gonna, we've been kind of stepping into it here along the way. And this morning, we're gonna look at a, 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 a guy who gets disappointed because he doesn't get what he wants. And he's used to getting what he wants because he's the king. And as he doesn't get what he wants, something's going to be exposed in his character. And what we're going to talk about today is what does it mean for us to let the Lord deal with the stuff that gets exposed in our character when disappointment hits us, when we have our own frustrations, setbacks, or disappointments. For many of us, the biggest mistakes that we make are downstream from character issues we should have dealt with much earlier in our lives. And we had opportunities to deal with those earlier in our lives. We just didn't want to deal with it earlier in our lives because it's no fun to deal with your character issues, right? 
Today, we're gonna see the opportunity that disappointment gives us to deal with the character issues in our hearts, in our, in our minds, in our lives, in order for us to be the men and women God designed us to be, that we might not contribute to more fracturing in the world. We want to be a part of God's generous work to bring healing and renewal to a fractured and broken world. We're gonna be in 1 Kings today, and if you are brand new to the Bible, I don't know much about the story of the Bible. First Kings, the, the, the story of the Old Testament is the story of God's work through the people of Israel, in the people of Israel. And uh, was, by the time you get to First Kings, you might not know the story. There's a, a civil war in Israel. And the northern kingdom is still called Israel, so that's a little confusing. And their capital is Samaria now. Southern kingdom's called Judah. Their capital is Jerusalem. And they remain faithful to God, faithful longer to God. But the people of the northern kingdom, they're kind of a mess from day one. And they have a succession of bad kings after bad kings after bad kings until finally they're conquered by a foreign nation. And so today we get King Ahab, who's kind of like the worst of the worst, right? He's like the worst kings of all the bad kings. And we're going to get a story that illustrates all the crookedness and depth of depravity in Ahab, and we're going to watch how, uh, how his depravity, his brokenness gets exploited and causes all kinds of fracturing all around him. So 1 Kings chapter 21 opens this way. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden since it's so close to my palace. In exchange, I'll give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll pay you whatever it is worth. In a recent survey, I found uh, 98% of the people said they're in the top 50% of niceness. 98% of the people said they're in the top 50% of niceness. In case you're wondering, it's mathematically impossible. We have a tendency to overestimate how wonderful we are. Ahab opens up with this tremendously wonderful, reasonable offer. Like he's, he's saying, hey, I love your vineyard. I want to grow some kumquats and some cucumbers. Let me have that vineyard right next to my palace. I'll give you a better vineyard or I'll just buy whatever it's worth. It seems like a perfectly reasonable, it is a perfectly reasonable, generous offer. But it turns out that Ahab is not generous all the way to the core. We're going to see that. As, that, as he gets, faces some disappointment, his content, the content of his character is going to get exposed, just like what happens to you and me. We, we meet our own disappointments and frustrations. Here's how the story continues. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. In this whole passage, the name of the Lord is only going to be referenced one time. King Ahab's not going to name, name the, the Lord at all, not going to look to the Lord at all. Only Naboth is the one that's going to name the Lord. He says, the Lord forbid that I give you the inheritance of my ancestors. Okay, so remember ancient times, these are all, all these families are all based on agriculture, farming, cattle, like land is a big whomping deal, right? It's passed along from generation to generation. It's part of your identity. You're a people of the land. Everyone's a people of the land, right? And so someone in my small group sort of just said that, that the king underestimates what the land actually means to Naboth. It's not just financial, right? It's, it's the family land. It's where they've been for generations. It's the security blanket for him and for his, his family for generations to come. And so he refuses the reasonable, generous offer from the king. And what King Ahab does is he pouts, whines, sulks, right? Sullen and angry, lays on his bed, sulking. He refuses to eat. How many of you have ever had a toddler in your life? 
Do you recognize this behavior? This is a total toddler behavior. I'm not going to eat. I'm going to go on a hunger strike because I'm not getting what I want. When I was a kid, I had a number of character issues my poor parents had to deal with with me. Too many to list here now. But one of them was I was a terrible, sore loser. Anything, soccer, sorry, uno, chess, crossword puzzles, uh, duck, duck, goose. I lost anything. I pouted, I whined, I soaked. Now, this was a little bit of a surprise to people who would just get to, who would meet me or get to know me because I wasn't like a super intense kid. I wasn't combative or super like ready for conflict. Or what. But man, if I lost, I melted down. I soaked and I pouted. And as much as I would have liked to have said that wasn't the real me, it was. It wasn't all of me, but it was all in there. And sometimes when I face disappointment or I lose at something, there's this little whiny kid voice that I've battled since I was about four years old that still wants to hijack me. The Lord's not done dealing with my character, dealing with the person who I am on the inside, all of me, and putting me back together again. Ahab opens up with a really reasonable offer. Naboth declines it, and when Ahab bumps up against this disappointment, this frustration, there's a beast in Ahab that gets unleashed, right? Now, for, what I want to suggest to you is that for almost all of us, there's some experience in life that we bump up against that exposes the beast, the broken sides inside you. Things that you didn't get, disappointments, you didn't get the job or the promotion that you thought you deserved. You didn't get the relationship back in the day that you wanted back in the day. You tried to start something new, a new business, a new nonprofit, a new organization. No one bought your thing. No one jumped on board. No one volunteered. Disappointment, disappointment, disappointment. Maybe your disappointment came when something didn't happen the way you thought it would. Maybe you planned a big family reunion. It's going to be so great. Family reunions, no family drama, all going to be wonderful. Perfect family Christmas, perfect family birthday. It doesn't quite go that way. Disappointment. Maybe your disappointment comes when you meet someone online or in real life and you say, why don't I have, why do they have those things? Why has their life turned out that way and my life hasn't? Maybe you hit frustration, disappointment with your kids. Probably never happened to you. You're probably all perfect parents. Maybe you hit these, these places where your kids just, the way they're behaving, the way, the way they're acting, it just pushes a button in you. Can you recall an experience, frustration, disappointment, that surfaced the worst parts of you? And I'm not saying that it all came out, that it erupted. Maybe it was just all internal, but that internal voice, frustration, self-righteousness, throwing yourself a pity party, whining, like those sort of things, or maybe celebrating someone else's misfortune. That might have been me last night. You've had that experience, right? Where something happens that brings out sort of the worst side of you. Here's what I want to suggest. Here's what I want to suggest. Every experience that brings out the worst in you is an opportunity to surrender to God's best for you. Every experience that surfaces the worst stuff in you is an opportunity to surrender to God's best for you. Every time that voice comes surfacing, whether it's cynical, angry, frustration, jealous, envious, anytime that voice surfaces, it's an opportunity because that voice is in you. It's not foreign to you. It's actually deep down inside. It's just underneath the surface. And when it's not surfaced, you can fool yourself into thinking that you're one of the top 95% people of niceness. But when it surfaces, there's an opportunity 
to deal with it. Now, part of what happens, especially when you act on it, especially when something kind of, some, some anger erupts or some jealousy or whatever, and you act on it and later you regret it or feel embarrassed about it, something you'll, sometimes what you hear people say is, I can't believe I did that. That's not the real me. Not the real me. I hate to break it to you. That's the real you. Not all of you. It's not all that you are. But that thing in you and that thing in me, that drives us to do things that we regret, that we're embarrassed about, that we're ashamed of, or that we should be ashamed of, but we kind of suppress, that's in there. My friends, denying the darkest parts of you, the most embarrassing parts, the most shameful parts of you, does not help you to become the holier version of you. Only surrender and repentance does that. Denying the worst parts of you does not help you to become the holiest, healthiest version of you. Trying to sweep that under the rug, trying to pretend that wasn't the real you, that doesn't help you become the best version of you. Only surrender does that. Only confession does that. My friends, you are this beautiful mix. Every human being, this beautiful mix, made in God's image, just courageous parts of you, creative parts of you, glorious parts of you. You can be absolutely wonderful one minute and 30 seconds later be absolutely atrocious. You ever seen that in you? All those parts mixed in with you. Here's the deal. Sin disintegrates us, fractures us. That's what sin does. Sin disintegrates us. What grace wants to do is reintegrate us, make us whole again. And the only way that you are whole again is by taking those worst sides of you and allowing God to muck around with them, to do good work with them. Every experience brings out the worst in you. It's an opportunity to surrender to God's best for you. God's best is mercy, grace, healing, renewal, whole-making. The good news is God loves to come alongside people made in his image and put the pieces back together again. So I hated, I hated to lose. I was such a sore loser as a kid. And as I grew in the Lord and got a little older, what I began to do is I began to sort of try to bring this mess inside of me that I was really embarrassed about, didn't understand. I tried to bring this whole mess to the Lord. God, why do I overreact every time I lose? Doesn't matter how important it is, how unimportant it is, why do I overreact so much, so strongly? Why do I do this? And God was very kind to show me more than I wanted to see about what was going on. But as I surrendered my worst sides of myself to God's best for me, God did three wonderful things. The first thing he did is he invited me to die. There's a, there was an angry, pouting, kind of entitled side of me that just needed to like die, not have authority over me. I just needed to let, let, that go, let, this, let God prune that back out of me and put it to death, to process that in a healthy way. The second thing that God did that was very gracious was this. As I was praying about it, he began to show me that the, my overreaction was showing me that there was something that God gave to me, a good hunger that God put in me, a thing that I, I should want, but I was trying to meet it in an unhealthy way. And what I realized as, as, that as I kind of processed this before the Lord was my dumb overreaction to losing in anything was because every time I was doing anything, my whole identity was on the line stupid. What was I doing that? Didn't matter if it was playing spades with college friends or getting the grade or getting into, getting into a program, whatever. It didn't matter what it was. If I lost, I was a loser. If I failed, I was a failure. And that spoke to all my worst fears about me. And what the Lord began to teach me and show me was he, I, 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 I was looking for identity somewhere. I was just looking for it in all the wrong places. I needed 
a healthier, safer, more life-giving place to put my identity in. And so over time, as the Lord showed me, hey, this, you've got a good hunger to find your identity. You're just sort of putting all your eggs in the wrong basket. As the Lord began to show me my real name, teach me who I was, it unhooked me from my performance deciding who I was, right? It freed me from my performance being what dictated how I felt about myself. And I allowed God's name for me to my confidence, my strength, win or lose, I was the same in God's eyes. And that was the place of security. That was the place of rest. Third wonderful thing God did was he actually redeemed and used it. There was some ways that were redemptive uses of this sort of unhealthy thing. One is I love to work. I'm not afraid to roll up my sleeves, go to work. Now there's ways I can get way unhealthy, way out of balance. But man, I love sort of moving the ball down the field, keep things going, right? I mean, sort of the, you know, this building project took six years to complete, right? And there was a lot of like labor of love and prayer, just trying to work and work and keep working with a great team of people to keep things moving along. But I'm just not afraid to go to work. And that's, there's, there's boundaries around that. I got to grow in that, but it's also a really good God-given thing in me. And the second redemptive use of all this is I can spot people like me a mile away. Hey, I used to be just like you. I used to find my identity, my security, my sense of worth, and how I performed. Let me tell you what God's done to put me in a much stronger, deeper, healthier place. These three wonderful things God did in me as I surrendered my worst sides to him and allowed his best to speak into me, right? These three things, one, I just kind of got to, I died to some things. Two, I began to root these, the things I was looking for in a deeper, stronger place. And then three, God actually redeemed it and used it in a healthy way. My friends, what would it look like? What would it look like for God to redeem your dark sides? What would it look like for God to do go to work in the places where you're not the most proud of? What would it look like to see every experience of disappointment, frustration, all those worst moments to be an opportunity for you to go to the Lord, to transform you at those deep, dark levels? What do you think it would look like for you? Your journey's a little different than mine. Your issues are different than mine. But the dynamic might be similar. The dynamic of saying, okay, God, here's this mess. I don't know what to do with it. I don't like it necessarily, but would you just take it and help me to figure it out? Ahab here is at his worst. That's one of his worst moments. He's pouting, he's sullen, he's angry, he's toddler-like refusing to eat. And he unfortunately does not have the wisdom to go to the Lord with how he's doing. And secondly, unfortunately, he's got people around him who are not afraid to enter into his weakness and leverage it for their own agenda and their own purposes. Here's how the story continues. Verse five, his wife Jezebel came in and asked him, why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So Jezebel sees her husband pouting. She comes alongside and she unleashes the beast within a little bit, right? Is this how you act as king over Israel? I'll get you that vineyard. Now, the problem is this. Someone needed to say to Ahab that first line. Is this how you act as king over Israel, right? Like someone needed to kind of give him a little wake-up call to not be a toddler anymore. That's actually somewhat helpful. What's not as helpful is what Jezebel does next and how she moves on to this. And part of what she's doing is she's sort of playing off this whole, uh, this whole wonderful problem we have in our culture called entitlement. Ever heard of it? Entitlement, someone in my small group said this this way, so great. Entitlement is expectations on steroids. I deserve this. You're king of Israel. You deserve the land. Don't let some commoner keep you from getting what you deserve. I'll get you what you 
wants. She's about to do a horrible, despicable, terrible, wicked thing. We're going to look at that here in a minute. But before we get there, something we need to attend to. The flip side to every, every experience that brings out the worst in you is an opportunity to surrender to God's best for you. Here's the flip side. Every experience that brings out the worst in you is an opportunity for the worst around you to exploit you. Give you bad advice. Speak into your life in a way that takes you away from God, away from life-giving direction, away from the place where you can actually be a life-giving contributor to the world around you. You are vulnerable to the worst people around you in your worst moments. Studies show that in society, in a fractured, broken world, between 12 and 15% of Americans are either sociopathic, psychopathic, or narcissistic. 12 to 15% of the whole population. So if you've got a family of 100 people or a school of 100 people, 1.2 to 1.5 of those people, I was looking out for those point people, are sociopathic, psychopathic, or narcissistic. I'm not saying that to be suspicious of people. I'm just saying we can't be naive about the fact that the world is a fractured place. Like, psychologically, deeply fractured. Ahab is pouting and sulking. There's a vacuum of Ahab's character that's going to be filled by Jezebel's wickedness. That's what happens when there's a vacuum. Jezebel's just as power-hungry as Ahab is. She's just more aggressive about it. And in this culture, remember, Jezebel is queen mostly by virtue of the fact that Ahab is king. And if Ahab looks weak, he's easily overthrown. So Jezebel's very invested in Ahab not looking like a preschool toddler. She's very invested in making sure that Ahab looks strong. And so because Ahab chose poorly with wives, he's about ready to be exploited and go in a dark path that's going to fracture more and more of the world. Wait, wait, pause it. Pause here for just a minute. Can you imagine if Jezebel was a person of character, if she loved the Lord and actually loved her husband? What if she said to, to, to Ahab, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up, go pray, seek the Lord. Take to him all your entitlement, all your greed, all your self-righteousness, take to God all your pity party. Let's watch what God would do. Can you imagine if, if she said that to him? How great that would have been for him? How life-changing that would have been, not just for him, but for the whole nation of Israel. Instead, she uses his weakness to advance her agenda. And so before we go any further, here's my question for you. Do the worst around you have power over you? Do the worst around you have influence in your life. You are going to have friends, co-workers, colleagues, family members who do not love God, who do not love you, who are self-absorbed and don't actually have wisdom to offer you. That's just life in a fractured world. Those people are going to be in your life. The question is, do those people have influence over you? Because if they do, you might give them access to your heart at your worst possible moment, which could lead to your worst possible mistake. Do the worst around you have power over you, access over you, voice over you to shape decisions you make. And the flip side to this is this, maybe more importantly, do you have people of depth and faith who have permission to speak freely to you? Do you have people in your life who genuinely love God, genuinely love you, and actually want the best for you? And actually, do those people in your life have permission to speak freely, to say hard truths to you when you need to hear them? Are you willing to cultivate relationships that are intentional about you have freedom to say whatever you feel like God wants you to say into my life, especially in my worst moments, because that's when I'm most vulnerable to doing something stupid. Ahab does not have a person of depth, character, wisdom, who loves the Lord and loves him. And so in his most vulnerable moment, someone steps into the vacuum of his character 
and directs the story in a way that is wicked and horrible and heartbreaking and brings out the worst in him and exploits this whole situation. Here's what Jezebel does, verse eight. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and placed his seal on them and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters, she wrote, proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. So here's the irony. Jezebel writes to the elders, proclaim a day of fasting. Do you know what fasting is supposed to be? You fast from food and water so that your appetites don't overrun you. You fast from food and water so you can focus on God. And remember how much more important God is than food or water or, I don't know, land acquisition or any kind of acquisition. Fasting always serves feasting on God, not on other people nor on things. So this whole thing is just a ruse. So instead what Jezebel does is they, they sort of use this religious practice as a cover for simply feeding more and more of their greed. And in this, in this sort of terrible plot, she's got some accomplices, right? First, she's got the elders, right? And the nobles who are corrupt enough or scared enough to go along with it. And the letter is signed in the king's name. So maybe you're like, well, maybe the nobles don't know any better, but look who the nobles send word to after the deed is done. Who they send word to? They send word to who? Jezebel. They know this is all her deal, right? They totally know she's the one pulling the strings on this whole, no, doesn't matter whose name is on the, uh, the edict, Jezebel's the one pushing the buttons and making things happen. So these elders are, right, are, are totally bought in either for their own sake, right? they wanna preserve their spot in the food chain and their place in the world, or they are just terrible people as well. And then there's the two scoundrels. There's always scoundrels around, right? There's always a couple of these other scoundrels are not smart enough to be the villain nor are they powerful enough to be elders to declare a fast. They're just low-level, like, knuckleheads who are just looking for trouble and glad to find it wherever they can, right? And to all these people, Naboth is just a pawn in their scheme, right? He's just a person to be disposed of, which is easy enough to do with a few easy lies and some crooked, wicked people. Here's how this part of the story closes, verse 15. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He's no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up, went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. And my friends, that's what happens when disappointment brings out the worst in us and we don't know how to handle it in a healthy way. And then the worst around us exploit the situation to further their own agenda, their own, their own wickedness, and their own evilness. And perhaps one of the worst sort of signs of how far it's all gone is Ahab doesn't care how Jezebel got it, right? Because when you're throwing yourself a pity party, you don't care how your pity gets relieved, even if it costs someone else everything. And the result here is someone gets murdered to simply acquire more land. 
But even if it doesn't go that far, right? Even if it doesn't go that far, for all of us, when the worst things get surfaced in us, if we don't attend to those worst things, if we don't give God access to the worst in us, downstream, what often happens are some of the worst decisions you've made in your life. And they didn't start in the moment. It started with the character check and the opportunity you had a year earlier, five years earlier, a decade earlier. The best time to deal with your character issues was 10 years ago. The second best time is today right here, right now. Best time to deal with your character issues, right? Was a decade ago. Next best time, right here, right now. And so as we close this morning, I just wanna close with some wildly important take-homes that just sort of gather up the things we talked about. First one is simply this. Every experience that brings out the worst in you is an opportunity to surrender to God's best for you. That involves repentance. And that means allowing God to do healing and redemption. All that's available. It just, return, it just requires a Godward turn, a turn toward the Lord. Can you start to become more aware when the nasty stuff is surfacing in you? And instead of either sweeping it under the rug or merely acting on it, can you start to say, okay, God, I don't want this. I don't like this. I don't know why I'm, well, I know why I'm acting so strong or so frustrated. But God, would you step in here to take hold of the things that are coming up in me, the jealousy, the anger, the frustration. Maybe, maybe the self-loathing is so loud, right? Maybe that's how you act. Maybe that's how you internalize it. But hey, listen, every time you hear that, those voices that you know are not life-giving to you, can you take them to the Lord and allow him to go to work? Second thing, Every experience that brings out the worst in you is an opportunity for the worst around you to exploit you. And so my friends, a couple questions. Do the worst around you, you're gonna have these people. Do they have power over you? Do they have authority? Do you listen to the people around you that are not life-giving, are not wise? You sort of know that on some level, but it's hard to always know how to box those people out. And then finally, do the people who do love you have faith, who are wise? Do they have permission to speak freely to you? into your life. Because my friends, we live in a fractured world. And the only way that you and I don't contribute to more fracturing is if we have whole people around us, or at least people who are a little bit more whole than us to help us to grow and become the people God wants us to become. My prayer as we head into Easter is that we might all give God more access to more of us in deeper ways. That what we might see God do and some character work in each one of us so that what we might do on the other side of that character work is not contribute to more and more fracturing in the world, but that we might contribute to more and more whole making in the world. This is what Jesus has come to do, right? Jesus has come to do this crazy work, taking a fractured world and putting all these pieces back together again. We're gonna celebrate that with Easter in just a couple of weeks. We're gonna celebrate that here in a smaller way with our experience of communion together. See, the world is a fractured place. This is just one story. Today we looked at one story of hundreds, thousands of stories just like it, of people lying, manipulating, killing to get what they want, to exploit people all that they want. And what the scriptures say is this, that in the very beginning, God created that plot of land and all plots of land. God created all things. And so they were all gods because God owned them. God created them. And then he deputizes human beings, made in his image, to be stewards of this thing that he has created. And the scriptures say that the stewards, the managers that God had deputized, give the keys away to a spiritual force that started with one great big lie. You can't trust God. And because they believe that lie, the world began to fracture and fracture and fracture. And that lie resulted not just in one death, that, that lie resulted in all death for all time. And so what God does is he looks down on an endlessly fractured and fracturing world and he has compassion on it. 
and he puts on flesh and he sends a whole maker, a redeemer, at atonement, at one meant. To take a thing that God made as a one whole and put the pieces back together again. Atonement is what Jesus has come to do. He does it. The high point is Easter weekend. And on the night he was betrayed, he does what Jesus is always doing. Taking ordinary things, making them extraordinary. He takes ordinary bread, he fractures it and breaks it and says, this is just like my body. This is my body. Eat this in remembrance of me. He takes the cup. He says, this cup is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins, for the endless fracturing that goes on and on and on and on. I'm spilling my blood to absorb all this fracturing to put the world back together again. Drink this in remembrance of me. His friends had no idea what was going on. They were confused. The night unfolds like a nightmare. He's betrayed by one of them arrested, crucified in one of the worst forms of torture ever invented. His friends scatter in a fog of fear, shame, heartbreak, sadness, disappointment. And then on that great third day, God raises him from the dead. And you know what Jesus is? He's whole. His body no longer fractured. He's got scars from the land of fractured, but his body is Complete, never to be sick or hurt or die again. He is unbreakable. He lives as one who is unbreakable among us. And he says, your body is gonna be this way too. You too, one day, will have resurrection power flowing through your veins. This is your future. Trust in me. And you too, one day, will be raised from the dead. Unbreakable glory, hallelujah. The only way that happens the only way that Jesus buys back all that was his, all the lands he created and all the people that he created is not by shedding someone else's blood like Jezebel did. He does it by shedding his own blood. That's how reconciliation happens. That's how restoration happens. That's how reunion happens with a God who loves us. And so my friends, you and I and every person on this planet are God's two times over. God created us and he's redeemed us, bought us back with his blood. And so we celebrate that with communion here this morning with people all over the globe who are worshiping the same Jesus, singing the same praises to this wonderful, wonderful Savior who stepped into a fractured world and said, I'm going to make you and all this new. We're going to move to our time of communion, and there's stations. There's two up front here and two in the back. We invite you to move to those whenever you're ready. We'll have some prayer ministers and some people to host those, those tables that are moving. Thanks so much, y'all, for moving to your stations. I appreciate that. On the, so there's a number of instructions, so stick with me here. On the napkin, it's gluten-free. So if you, are, if you are gluten intolerant, you are welcome to that. And the little cups, that's a that's standard sort of cracker. And then there's grape juice there. So everyone's invited to sort of participate at home. If you don't mind going and getting your elements, that would be fantastic. We've added a little wrinkle this month because uh, several weeks ago we had a prayer time in here that was so powerful. We said we've got to create some different space for prayer. And so what we're going to do as we move to the prayer stations here in just a minute is there's going to be, an, I mean, to the communion stations, there's going to be another communion station right through the, that, those curtains right there. And the prayer team is going to be back there. And if you need prayer today for anything, anything at all, the prayer team's going to be back there with some communion elements, and they would love to pray for you. you got medical issues. you got family issues. you got pain. you got heartbreak. you got issues. If you got stuff you need to confess and come out to the light about, the prayer team will be back there. They'll be glad to pray with you and for you. They're going to be fantastic. So as people are moving, if you're like, you know what? I just need some prayer today before I take these elements or as a part of this. The prayer team is right there for you to pray for you 
and with you. Go to the tables, go to the stations. I want to invite you to get the elements, to, to, to pick them up, and to bring them back to your seats, and then we'll eat and drink together. One last thing before we move into this time, and that is the, the worship team is going to pray, play a piece of special music over us called Nineveh. It's a beautiful story in the Old Testament, a different story from the Old Testament about a city that was all kinds of fractured and all kinds of fracturing happening. And God sends Jonah, who's reluctantly sent and goes and calls them, invites them to turn toward the Lord. And they do, and God spares the city, and there's renewal and restoration. The song is about that experience. So the, the worship team is going to sing that over us as we go to the communion stations and sit in the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus. One last thing, and that is if you're not yet a Jesus follower, we're so glad you're here. If you haven't been baptized, not yet committed your life to the Lord, so glad you're here. We just invite you to pass on these elements and consider what God has done for us in Jesus. Let me pray for us as we move down to a time of communion. Lord Jesus, these elements, you give them to us to remind us, to help us to lock in and be awake to wide awake spiritual realities. And so we ask now as we move to these tables, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here to do whatever work we need you to do to help us to get our hearts and our minds around the goodness of what God has done for us in Jesus. We ask these things in your strong and mighty name. Amen. Amen and amen. Go ahead and move to the tables whenever you're ready.